Good evening. I'm Ian Bizek, the host for Bizek on Stocks. As always, uh, nothing here is investment advice, entertainment, and educational purposes only. And with that, I want to wish everyone, hope you all had a great holiday weekend. Sorry there was no show last week, but busy with the family for Easter and hope you guys all had a great time with the holiday as well. Um, so yeah, what, what we missed last week, market's definitely getting interesting. Earnings season is here. Uh, we'll get to banks in a minute, but probably people want a quick take on Netflix. Uh, I know we've discussed streaming stocks here in the past, and obviously, and a Netflix the top story today. Uh, quite the quite the decline. What was it like thirty five percent? Clearly, content's getting to be a harder business uh, than it was, and I think this is kind of the problem that Netflix has had, kind of the streamers have had for a while. Is there's just too much money competing in the same industry. Everyone's making product and you see a lot of churn people are going and saying let's see what's on disney plus let's see what's on hbo what's the what's on paramount you know and so between that and the the end of the pandemic people are going out and doing stuff out of their house maybe spending less time on streaming so i think we're starting to see the kind of new reality for a lot of tech companies post pandemic that they enjoyed uh, unprecedented growth in 2020 2021 now they're up against a very difficult comparable period between last year and this year. Um, as they're actually, yeah, I mean, if Netflix can hold their subscriptions flat, let's say this year, and then return to growth in 2023, I, I don't think that would be the end of the world for them. Um, but clearly this puts a, a stock like this in a difficult place because you have people like uh, Bill Ackman, for example, who are seeing this as a growth investment. And then kind of the moment that it slowed down, uh, in terms of it stopped growing, we saw Ackman tonight saying that he's out of the stock, uh, took his loss, moved on. Well, I think a lot of other hedge funds are doing that. And you'll see risk in other other kind of software, subscription, streaming sorts of businesses. I don't know how you could own something like Peloton here, for example. Uh, like anyone who is going to sign up for a bike uh, would have done so in 2020, 2021. And they're just going to lose subscribers throughout this year, next year, probably. Uh, as things return to normal, people go back to the gym or people do exercise outdoors or whatnot. So I think you're seeing kind of uh, subscription fatigue, let's say. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting earnings season. Um, but I don't know if you follow my work, uh, there's a lot to like in the market lately. Uh, like Just looking at companies that made new all-time highs today, you've got Canadian Natural and Energy, you've got Public Storage in the REITs. You've got Raytheon and the defense contractors, Hormel and Food. That's four different companies that I've recommended in the past in four different industries that are all making new highs today, which uh, I think goes to speaks to the value of having a diverse, diversified portfolio that has exposure to different sectors and different economic engines. There's still a lot of companies out there making a lot of money right now, a lot of companies that are handling inflation very well. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely some real uh, problems on the horizon in terms of rising interest rates and inflation and all, but uh, there's always some place to make money. And I'm confident that these changing market conditions will actually create a lot of opportunities to find uh, new opportunities. And so with that out of the way, and of the quick overview of the market and earnings, let's get into the topic for tonight, which would be the bank stocks. And I think I can summarize kind of the theme for this show. Uh, and a quick question, which is just why aren't the banks going up with interest rates soaring? The the narrative we always hear is that banks are supposed to just print money in times of rising interest rates. And yet 
if you look at the banks, the the big bank index, the XLF ETF, I believe is only up 5% over the last year. And the regional bank ETF is basically flat, uh, which uh, we've seen the largest up move, or fastest up move in interest rates, excuse me, in the last 20 years. And so at first glance, it would seem rather surprising that the banks are essentially flat. Uh, you would think that they'd be up a lot. So that's what we'll primarily be talking about this evening is just kind of an overview of the banking industry the factors that are causing uh, kind of the under underperformance, and then I'll open the lineup for questions. Uh, I won't be pitching too many specific banks tonight. I'm more going over the industry fundamentals and sector overview, but if you have a question on a particular bank and it's one that I follow or know about, I will be happy to answer toward the end. Um, yeah, so that's the intro. Let's see, one second. <laughs> Yeah, so a lot of people look at banks and they say when interest rates are going up, they want to buy banks. And when interest rates are going down, they want to sell banks. Uh, and so why is why is this trade not working? Certainly, if you've been watching CNBC or kind of Red Barons or all, they've been pitching banks uh, for the better part of the last two or three quarters on this theme. And yet it's just not working. Uh, particularly some of the national banks like Citigroup have gone to 52-week lows over the past month which is particularly not what you'd expect to see now. Uh, what, the 30 years got over 3% now. Mortgage rates have gone over 5% for the first time since 2007. So it seems like rates are going up. Banks aren't moving. What's going on? Uh, the first issue is the inverted yield curve, uh, which sounds like technical speak, but in English that just means that short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates. Uh, normally, if you visualize a line, it will be kind of just straight up and to the right in terms of interest rates. Short-term interest rates will be very, very low, and then the longer-term rates will cost more. And that's, that has to do with uh, the normal human tendency to value things more uh, today than in the future. Like a dollar today is worth more than a dollar five or ten years from now. People are willing to pay more for money in the future than today. Uh, and so normally, normally you have to pay more to, to borrow money for a longer period of time and pay less if you want to borrow it for a short period of time. And that's kind of how the banking industry makes its money in general. Because if you think about a bank, it's a two-sided business. Uh, it takes deposits. So you walk into a bank, you give them $1,000, and then the bank has to pay you money in return for using your money. So that's a liability to the bank. And then the bank, uh, when you give them $1,000, they'll make a mortgage or they'll lend it to a business or they'll lend it to the government, something like that. And then they'll get interest on that. And presumably they'll earn a lot more from the loan that they make than the deposit they give you. And for the past 10 years, banks have pretty much been paying 0% on their interest. Like if you walk into a, I don't know, a JP Morgan in the US, they've been offering 0% or close to 0% on their savings accounts. And so you give JP Morgan money at 0% and then they make a mortgage at 4%, let's say. They make a 4% profit on that. And then even after paying their salaries and costs and whatnot, they make a good good profit on that. So that's a good business. That's typically like how banks like to operate. They, they lend money at short-term, low rates, uh, lend it out long-term, high rates. That's the goal. I think the, the old slogan was, uh, 363, which was, you, as a banker, you borrow money at 3%, you lend it out at 6%, and then you're on the golf course by 3 p.m. Banking supposed to be a very simple business. Uh, but right now it's not working uh, the normal way because the yield curve is, in cur is inverted, meaning that now banks are having to pay a lot more for their short-term money. Uh, you look at the like two-year interest rates, for example, and they're up to 3% now. 
And so if a bank wants to sell a two-year CD, for example, they're going to have to pay 2.5-3% on that to get deposits. Um, but then you look at the long-term interest rates and they've barely gone up. And so banks haven't been able to raise their rates on mortgages and on commercial loans nearly as much as they've had to raise the rate that they pay on deposits. And so their profit profitability has actually declined and will continue to decline as long as the yield curve remains inverted. Uh, and this is why people have to point to the inverted yield curve as a sign of a recession, uh, because it's a bad sign generally for the economy when people don't want to borrow money over the long term. Uh, in one sense, rates are so low over the longer term because people, in particular companies, just aren't borrowing money at a sufficient rate for new factories, new business, uh, new infrastructure. There's just not enough demand in the economy, uh, and there's not been enough consumer demand either. A big factor for banks that I don't, I've don't i hardly seen anyone talk about is the drop in credit card usage uh, between 2020 and the beginning of 2022. The amount of consumer credit in the U.S., like just revolving credit lines, has dropped nearly 20%. Uh, this is presumably because people are stuck at home and couldn't spend money going out for a lot of their usual attractions. And on top of that, the government mailed people lots of money for things such as uh, much larger than usual unemployment benefits. And so people are getting sent money and then they couldn't leave their house. And so a lot of people just paid off their credit cards and credit cards are the highest profitability uh, line of lending for most banks. And so you've got all these 15, 18% loans uh, on credit cards that banks used to be able to make that were just huge sources of profits and those have diminished greatly over the past two years. Uh, that had been largely covered up, the loss of credit uh, earnings had been covered up with uh, increased mortgage activity. Obviously, the housing market has been red hot in the U.S. and in other Western countries as well. And banks, uh, not only do they get to lend, uh, obviously, on mortgages, which is good business, uh, but they get the fees for writing mortgages. Uh, some banks, like Wells Fargo in particular, are huge mortgage underwriters. And so they've just been printing, they've been just a fee machine over the past year because they've been writing more mortgages than ever. Uh, I mean, we've seen the housing market has gone crazy in some places. Everything's been selling the day it's listed 10, 20, 25% over the offer. And so Wells Fargo in particular, but some of the other national banks have been just making a ton of money on mortgages. Uh, that's going to slow down dramatically over the next year or two. Uh, in particular, refinancing is going to largely dry up, I think. Anyone that has a mortgage at, say, 3 or 4% is obviously not going to refinance now, so that will be a big loss to bank earnings. Um, also, overall bank assets are going to shrink going forward. Uh, the Federal Reserve is planning on uh, tapering, pulling assets out of the banking system, which is the contrary of what they've been doing for many years, where they've kept adding new, new funds. And the plumbing discussion gets complicated, so we'll avoid it, but generally just when the when the Fed is easing, they're putting more money into the banks, and then the banks make more loans with that. And so you get uh, easy money, and the system expands. Now the Fed will be pulling money out of the system, which means the banks will have less and less capital uh, from the Fed with which to make their own loans. And so you're going to see the overall banking system in the U.S. probably shrink in size for the first time in quite a while. And that just will be bad for profitability in general. I mean, you have less assets to through your system. Uh, and even if your profitability on your assets is the same, profits will go down just because there's less there. Uh, in particular, as the Fed lets their, their loans run off and pull capital out of the system, the banks will have to buy government bonds 
someone has to buy the U.S. Treasuries, and the Fed has been a huge buyer of U.S. Treasury bonds in recent years. But as the Fed backs out of that line of business, banks will have to buy more of them. And every treasury that the bank is buying, say J.P. Morgan is buying a U.S. Treasury, that's capital that they're not using to make a mortgage or to lend for a construction loan or something like that that would uh, have higher profitability and stimulate the economy. So that's a big way how how the Fed's actions will slow down the economy is that the, the U.S. banks will have to backstop a lot of the government debt uh, that they weren't before. Uh, one other factor that's in the bank stocks now uh, one other factor that's in the bank stocks now is Russia risk. People are worried about about a big slowdown, uh, not slowdown, sorry, uh, big losses uh, from banks that are potentially exposed to Russia. Um, sorry, my app is going weird. Let's see. Oh, there we go. Um, uh, from what I can tell, there's very little direct risk. I think Citigroup has the most exposure but of the U.S. banks, but even then it's small. It seems to be much more a European bank problem than a U.S. problem. But there's always second-order effects that could happen uh, if... Uh, if you're lending to, I don't know, an industrial company in Germany and then that industrial company can't fulfill orders in Ukraine because of the war, then maybe your Germany, German company defaults uh, six months into the future. So direct exposure to Russia, from what I can tell, is very low for the U.S. banks. Um, however, there could be knock-on effects, but I would say that that's uh, overblown as a risk for the U.S. banks. Uh, people have this idea that the U.S. banks are making loans in every corner of the planet and always running into trouble, but that really stopped after 2008 uh, when, uh, when the, obviously, the financial crisis and the banking system was reformed to greatly reduce the amount of uh, risky loans they could make. So banks like Citigroup and Bank of America aren't going to blow up because of Russia. That might take a small loss, but it won't be a big deal. Uh, I do see a comment here on... Yes, that for Wells Fargo, their mortgage revenues were well under 10% of their their total revenues, which uh, I don't have their income statement in front of me, but I'd imagine that's correct. However, it's a high margin, very high margin business for them. Uh, but yeah, that's smaller than I would have thought. A lot of the regional banks get 20, 30% of their their revenues from, from, uh, from mortgage underwriting. So uh, yeah, if it's only 6% for Wells Fargo, not as big of a headwind as as you might have uh, imagined, because Wells Fargo is the fourth largest mortgage underwriter in the country. But I guess uh, over the size of their whole balance sheet, it's not as big of a problem. Um, yeah, so why, why isn't this rate cycle helping the banks as much as past ones? Uh, simply put, the rates are going up too quickly this time. In the past, you typically got rate cycles that would go slowly, like the Fed would increase 25 basis points uh, every so often. And rates would go up slowly for a long time into an economic expansion. Uh, like 2003 to 2007, the economy kept recovering up until the end. And so it was a very profitable period for banks because the long-term interest rates and mortgages went up faster than the short-term rates. So you had fatter spreads, wider net interest margins. Uh, it was a very good environment for banks. This banking environment, however, is looking much more complicated uh, because we seem to be jumping right through the repricing. Like people think the Fed's going to hike like eight times this year, which is uh, just a ton historically. And then people think the economy is going to go into recession in 2023. Uh, looking at your inflation 
pricing and where bonds are for 2023 and 2024, people see the Fed starting to cut rates again uh, <laughs> by 2024, which indicates that people think the Fed's going to overdo it and send the economy straight into a recession, uh, which is uh, not ideal for banks. Banks are tied to the economic cycle, so they... they uh, and if in isolation, banks would prefer higher interest rates rather than lower interest rates because it gives them more room to operate uh, in terms of the spread. Um, but banks don't want interest rates to go up so quickly that people can't pay their bills, which if you uh, like if you take mortgages from, say, 3% to 6% in a year, you're going to cause the housing market to go into a big tailspin and start causing uh, problems with people not being able to, the uh, housing values to decline and people not being able to pay, so... People are worried about credit risk again, which we hadn't been worried about for a while, but that's a big reason why banks are struggling now. Um, but all that to say, those are the negatives. That's why banks are trading pretty weekly in some like Citigroup in particular at 52-week lows. Um, let's see. Yeah, I can open the line. TJ, hop on. You want to hop on, TJ? Good evening. Yeah, good evening. One of the one of the interesting things I heard announced from the Fed is is that they plan on intentionally raising unemployment to help deal with some of the inflationary issues we're dealing with. Do you, can you talk to that? Is that something you can confirm as well? Um, yeah, uh, I believe the Bullard comments. He was talking about the need to. Uh, I know he said that they were worried about asset prices and it seemed like they were wanting to talk down asset prices as a way of controlling inflation. I didn't see any comments specifically on unemployment, but yeah, I mean, that would be one way to fight inflation because uh, right now the labor market is so tight. Like people can go, even like unskilled people can go and say, I want $20 an hour. I want $22 an hour for jobs that would have paid, I don't know, $12 an hour before the the pandemic, and then that causes a massive uh, knock-through effect on the price of of lodging and restaurants and things like that. And so, yeah, I think the Fed would love to see a little more uh, slack in the labor market. I don't know how things are now. I haven't seen the data recently, but I know migration from Mexico and Central America basically stopped during the pandemic as well. And so I think there's a huge shortage of the kind of uh, labor that we got from those sources that would uh, kind of keep uh, employment full, kind of in agricultural kind of hotels, restaurants, things like that, would rely on a lot of that sort of labor that's uh, not been supplied recently. And so I think that's causing a huge uh, issue as well. But I'm not sure. I mean, it's hard for the Fed because this isn't really a Fed problem. This is a government policy. It's something for Congress to deal with, not the Fed. Uh, but the Fed kind of has its hands tied uh, in terms of what it can do uh, with labor. But yeah, definitely, if you raise interest rates enough, uh, you'll start you'll start uh, causing some businesses to slow down their growth and uh, free up some labor, maybe drive up unemployment a little bit. That would almost have a twofold effect, right? So the the people that that can no longer service their mortgages will probably sell, which puts uh, extra inventory back on the retail market. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what happens. I think a lot of people are going to try to avoid selling uh, if they have a very low interest rate mortgage. Like if they got, let's say, a 3.5% mortgage, and now the market for a new 30 years is at 55 Obviously, you'd prefer to avoid selling and having to move and take out a new mortgage at a much higher rate. 
but it, yeah, obviously, if people lose their jobs and can't pay, then they have to move regardless. Yeah, it might put them in a unique position to also just kind of hold off and rent in the meantime. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, we've been hearing for years that the millennials are supposed to move out and start their own, uh, buy, their, buy a house, get married, have kids, uh, that sort of thing. And we haven't really seen it quite yet in the data. And I think it was supposed to happen now, which was going to be a big underpinning for the housing market over the next few years. But I don't I don't know if it will happen. I'm very curious. Yeah, the most recent figure data. I saw was over 50% millennials. Uh, living with family or still living at home. And that's a huge, vast percentage. Yeah, that's way more than you'd expect for people that are already, I don't know, 30, 35 years old. Uh, Traditionally, they've bought homes much sooner in the U.S. All right, anything else, TJ? Or should I go on to Gary? Hi, Ian. Uh, thanks again for doing this. Absolutely. Good to hear from you. Hope you had a great holiday weekend. Yeah, I did. Thank you. Um, I'm curious how high you think mortgage rates might go this year and regarding the housing market, how it would affect regional banks versus the larger banks. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, yeah, I think we're at what five and a quarter now nationally and My understanding is there's a little bit of a lag between uh, where we are in the government bonds, which have continued going up even over the yields over the past week or two. Um, There's a bit of a lag between that and the mortgage rates. So based on where we are now, I think we could easily see five and a half, five and three quarters. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of momentum in the market. So uh, maybe we could see 6%. I doubt it goes much beyond that. I mean, the... Bonds are way oversold from a technical basis, so you'd think there'd be some sort of relief rally. Um, yeah, and at some point, we'll see something that will scare people uh, in terms of saying maybe we're getting a little out of control here. But I don't know. I think 6% would be very achievable this year. Um, as for which part of the market it benefits or or hurts, yeah, actually, let me just go into the... I've kind of gone through the negatives for banks now and why they've been underperforming. And then let me go into the positives for banks, kind of the second half of my uh, presentation that I prepared here. And I think that will uh, cover that. And then if you want to hop back on the line after that, I okay. will do so. Yep. Sounds good. Yeah, so, yeah, so I kind of ran through why banks have been struggling, kind of why they haven't been keeping up with interest rates. Uh, but let me make the, the positive case for banks here. Uh yeah, for one, I think uh, something a lot of people don't fundamentally appreciate is the banking climate has totally changed uh, since 2008. The U.S. banks used to be able to run those kind of black boxes that would do whatever they wanted. You had banks that were 30, 35 times levered heading into the housing crisis. This is just no longer possible due to regulatory changes. Now banks are closer to 10 times levered, so more than three times as much cushion as in the past uh, due to changes in how assets are classified. Uh, a lot of the riskier assets that used to be able to be held at bank levels are now basically prohibited or they use so much capital that it's no longer efficient. Banks like Goldman Sachs that used to be able to gamble on whatever it wanted anywhere in the world have sharply reduced their discretionary trading. So uh, the industry is much less risky than it used to be. Uh, And so people value banks 
kind of based on historical multiples, but I believe banks should have a higher valuation now because there's less terminal, there's less downside risk uh, because banks simply aren't given enough rope to hang themselves with anymore compared to the past. Uh, and even that being the case, uh, study through 2015, so sorry, I, hopefully the author will update it, but study from 1933 to 2015, the best performing U.S. sectors of the stock market, banks came in eighth, I believe, and that even out of 30, uh, so top quartile, and that was even with the 2008 crisis. Obviously, prior to 2008, banks were, I believe, the number three sector after uh, after tobacco and after alcohol, so banks historically have been very strong performers, and even including the 2008 crisis, they did uh, better than the S&P 500 to a significant degree. So it's a sector I think people should own, uh, just kind of have a default towards owning banks because historically they outperform. Uh, valuations are quite reasonable now. My general rule of thumb is take a bank's uh, median return on equity, which you can find a site like QuickFS, for example, has a 10-year median uh, ROE, so easy to find. Uh, and then divide that by, by 10. So say a bank has a ROE of 10%, let's say, which is right around the national average right now. Uh, that would justify paying a 1.0 times book value for that bank. If you think about it, like the book value is all of the bank's assets that it can earn you money with. And then the ROE is the percentage that they're earning uh, in a given year of profitability. Uh, and so if the bank is very good at profit, uh, making profits, so it has an ROE of 15%, which would put it in kind of the top 10% of U.S. banks, then you can pay 1.5 times book value and get a, a good return. Uh, whereas if a bank is really struggling, something like the European banks, for example, have been earning ROEs of like 3 or 4% over the past decade. So you could only pay like 0.3 or 0.4 times book value and expect to earn a decent return uh, on investment. Obviously, there's there's exceptions and uh, times where you might want to pay more or less. But as a general rule of thumb, that's kind of where I start out. And a lot of U.S. banks are now back under that that uh, threshold. There's a lot of stuff that, that if I run a screen on that, the number of stocks I can look at has gone up dramatically over the past three months. Um, and then for a lot of people buy banks for income, uh, the number of banks trading at a 3% or higher dividend yield is dramatically higher than it was six months ago. We've seen a big increase in bank dividends across the sector, even as prices have, have dropped. Uh, so I think there's a lot of income opportunities uh, starting in the sector. We're seeing a lot of buybacks. Banks were stopped from making buybacks during uh, the pandemic due to the... the um, the Federal Reserve had put limits on the banks and they ended up with a lot of excess capital um, because they weren't allowed to buy back stock or pay higher dividends during the pandemic. And yet they actually earned record profits in 2020, thanks to the, the housing boom. And so banks ended up with a ton of extra capital in 2021, 2022. And so now they're buying back a bunch of stock. As prices go down, those buybacks become more and more valuable in terms of retiring more of their outstanding shares. Um, the pandemic pushed through a ton of positive changes in terms of digitalizing processes. I've talked to people that work for bank software companies, companies like Encino, for example, and they said that they did more business in 2020 than they'd done in three, four years before that in terms of signing up new clients. And once you get a bank on a piece of software, they're not going to go backwards. Uh, like bank software is notorious like you still have banks using like IBM mainframes from 30 years ago and so 2020 forcing everyone to work at home uh, caused huge tech 
upgrades. Uh, and so you've digitized and automated a ton of stuff in banks. So you're going to have higher efficiency uh, in banks going forward. I think that's something that's underappreciated. People don't realize how much of an improvement in bank processes we've seen over the past 24 months. Uh, disruptive, non-tech, uh, excuse me, uh, tech-based non-banks, the, the alternative lenders are starting to struggle. We've seen huge price drops for companies like Square, companies like PayPal, SoFi is at new lows today. Uh, we're starting to see loan quality from the alternative lenders like Klarna. Their loans, they went to over 100% of uh, their net income on their loans uh, being lost in bad loans. Upstarts loans have uh, ticked uh, dramatically in the wrong direction in terms of loan quality. And so that was a big talking point against the banks last year was that all of these these well-funded startups were going to eat their lunch, uh, but it looks like the it looks like they're running out of steam pretty quickly. So obviously that's good for banks in terms of their potential rivals uh, losing funding, access to funding. Uh, long term, the banking industry in the U.S. needs to continue consolidating. There's still almost six thousand banks in the U.S., which is obviously way more than you would expect to see in a country. Uh, most Western countries have far fewer banks, so you'll see a lot of M&A. Uh, as banks consolidate, they get to remove excess costs. It's a big driver for growth. And with regulatory changes post-financial crisis, the M&A cycle has accelerated. So that's good news for banks, and particularly for regional banks, because they tend to get acquired rather than being the acquirer. So you get takeover premiums whenever you get bought. Uh, look for credit card activity to pick back up now that the government has stopped stimulating the economy and inflation is starting to cause people problems in terms of afford affordability. Uh, credit line usage will go back to normal, which will benefit the banks, uh, in particular uh, lenders like Citigroup that are heavy in credit cards. That will be good for them. Uh, beware of uh, banks that are strong in specialty sectors. Somebody like car loans, they've been way, making way more money than usual over the past year. It's been impossible to lose money in a car loan because the price of used cars has actually gone up, which is uh, very unusual. But due to the pandemic, due to the lack of new car supply. Uh, and so if anyone didn't pay their car loan, the bank could just uh, reclaim the car and sell it at a higher price in the used market, which is uh, very atypical from history. Uh, so companies that relied on car loans, for example, have done very well, but that won't continue forever. Uh, construction loans get risky as rates are going up. If people pull out of new developments, like maybe they put down a deposit, but they don't actually build, end up building the house, you could lose money on construction loans, uh, something like boat uh, leasing, uh, those, these sorts of specialty things I'd be careful of. A lot of regional, not a lot, some regional banks uh, make their money in specialty lending, and I'd be careful with those, particularly if they seem to be over-earning, like if they had a very good 2021, uh, make sure what, you know what you own. I would, in this environment, I'd rather own more vanilla lenders in general, banks that are typically lend against houses or against uh, traditional uh, commercial real estate. Be careful with stuff like construction loans because it could get interesting if rates go up too much. Uh, and then, yeah, finally, multifamily housing could be uh, a dodgy spot as well. Uh, we've seen an uptick in crime. There's rent freezers, uh, eviction moratoriums kind of getting complicated. I wouldn't want to be a big owner of San Francisco condos now, uh, let's just say. Um, yeah, so in general, I like regionals over nationals to get to Gary's point. I think the regional banks are more tied to 
to economic growth. They've also underperformed a little bit over the past year. Uh, when people see interest rates going up, they tend to instinctively buy the XLF ETF, which owns the large banks, uh, whereas the regional and the community banks don't really have much ETF uh, ownership. They're kind of more neglected. So I think they trade more on their own fundamentals rather than kind of the macro story. I think regionals, there's a lot of room for growth, and I think you'll see a huge wave of M&A over the next two years as well. Uh, so I like regionals. Uh, I think the national banks are fine, uh, but, I mean, there's always the black box risk. Uh, yeah, either, either you've got full valuations in something like J.P. Morgan or you've got a very cheap stock in something like Citi, uh, but then you've got the, the obvious risks uh, that, City historically has had poor performance, and they're more exposed to Europe and Latin America than the others. I think City's cheap here, but it's easy to come up with a bare thesis on City if you want. Um, yeah, so in general, I'd say banks are interesting. I mean, the I get why they're trading down. You can make a bearish case for them, uh, but I think there's a lot of opportunity as well. The valuations are very reasonable. Uh, if you didn't know anything else, you'd think the economy was already in a recession, looking at the banking industry valuations and their charts, uh, whereas, who knows, maybe the Fed will be able to manage a soft landing. And in that case, like if the economy keeps growing, and let's say mortgages uh, stabilize at 5%, the economy keeps growing, inflation gets under control, you, a lot of banks will double from here. There's a lot of upside if, if the economy keeps humming along well, and I think even if we go into a recession, a lot of banks are cheap enough that they, they won't perform too badly. The dividend yields are attractive now as well. So that would be my overview of banks. And then I'll open the line back up for Gary or anyone else that wants to hop in. Anyone want to hop on? TJ, you're back up. Oh, there we go. Well, I just got I just got to congratulate you, Ian. I mean, well done. Great overview. I love the way you communicate. Ton of info. It's real. Um, there's no no catchphrases or uh, additional indexing needed. Any of that. So I just just well well done. Nice presentation. I enjoyed it. Um, I, I guess to to the big question too is. Um, you mentioned if the economy slows down growth, it seems like a lot of this is tied to our growth, right? So we've got record levels of, of debt and deficits, um, and that's entirely predicated on continued growth. So if we do see a slowdown in growth, does that mean that the Fed kind of holds the, the, the rise in rates or reverses direction? So if, well, let's just make the proposition that the economy does slow. Do you think the Fed will kind of react to that and we'll see lower interest rates again? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the if you look at the futures curve for the various um, bonds, you can see bonds uh, their expiration dates for various months in two thousand twenty two, twenty three, twenty four, so on, and we're pricing in like nine hikes, or like the equivalent of nine twenty five basis points hikes. Um, maybe the Fed will go faster, so fewer if it's like fifty or seventy five point hikes. But we're pricing in the equivalent of nine hikes over the next twelve months, which to me seems crazy. I don't. Uh, the Fed has not been aggressive like that since the 1990s, and I very much don't think Powell wants to cause a, a sharp drop in economic activity or in financial markets, and so I would much more expect that the Fed will go uh, conservatively, let's say 25-point basis hikes, 
as long as uh, inflation remains a big problem. Uh, but they'll be looking for some reason to to go at a more modest pace, whereas the market is pricing just this where we go from zero uh, prior to last month going straight up to 3% uh, virtually overnight. I don't think the financial markets would stand for that. And I think the moment you see, I don't know, it's called the S&P down 20% or you see unemployment really move up um, or you see the politicians complaining. Like, I don't know, let's say it's October and the Fed has already hiked five times and the approval ratings for the the Democrats are falling. I think you might see Biden or other Democrats say, what are you doing? Why are you trying to hike the economy into a recession uh, right before an election? I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the Fed might might back down. So I think the current trajectory we're seeing of nine hikes over the next year is not going to happen. Uh, I think there's a variety of, of ways. I mean, just uh, if inflation slows down on its own or if politicians intervene or if financial markets really drop, uh, I think more likely we get like four, five, six hikes. And as that happens, then then that might give the economy a second wind. Uh, uh, yeah, particularly something like housing. Obviously, there's still a ton of demand for housing, like demographics, as we discussed. There's a lot of reasons why people should own housing. And so uh, if the Fed can take a more measured approach, uh, hopefully there will be a soft landing. I mean, I think uh, I, I don't want a recession. And I think most investors don't want a recession. And the Fed doesn't want a recession. And so if there's some way to, to walk the tightrope, uh, I think the Fed will try to manage it. But I don't know. Maybe inflation is just too high and they have to hike straight into recession. We'll see. Well, that was one of my original thoughts, too. So we, we had the official CPI numbers come out. But, of course, they exclude the really important factors like, you know, food, energy and, and used car prices and asset prices like homes and real estate. We, we did see like recently just within the last year, 40 or, or depending on where you are, 40 to 50 percent increase in asset prices with homes. And not on the lower end of 40 for used vehicles. Could that be like not just a supply chain issue, but more along the lines of just the devaluation of the, the dollars that are currently in circulation? Um, yeah, it's, uh, there's certainly a, a variety of factors. And to some extent, I think people have seen uh, kind of the inflationary pressure in the economy and said, I don't want money sitting in my bank account, so I'm going to spend it on assets, be it stocks or on homes or cars or uh, yeah, I think I think there's kind of a once people get the mindset that inflation has started, uh, people rush to spend cash, which in turn causes more inflation. Uh, yeah. yeah, more demand. Factories are overtaxed. There's been six month waits to buy appliances, and uh, I don't know. We're looking at uh, building a house here where I am, and there's no doors, there's no windows, <laughs> there's just shortages <laughs> of stuff. And yeah. so obviously people can raise prices even more. Uh, well, you know, I thought the same thing too. So I pulled up the Fed's M2, M2 supply chart and, and I know that they really injected a lot of liquidity in the market, to try to help stave off a recession and a, arguably a depression. Um, I think they did the right thing in that sense. But also I think the other aspect is it hasn't really resulted in a higher velocity of money. I mean, obviously, it's better for the economy when money continues to move in exchange from one individual to the next, to the next, to the next um, at, at higher velocities. And that really necessarily hasn't happened. So I guess my question is, where is all the cash gone? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I know velocity had been going straight down uh, basically through the entire 2010s and into, yeah. the, into the recession uh, right. or into the COVID. I haven't looked at the data since COVID. I would have assumed velocity of money was up, but that's interesting. Uh, 
yeah, off the top of my head, I don't have a good explanation for that. Yeah. That's a good question. Well, I, I follow this guy, John Titus, on YouTube. He's, he runs a channel called Best Evidence. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, he seems to be a, an extreme ex- expert on Fed policy and monetary fiscal policy. So I've been watching some of the stuff, a lot of it's over my head, but uh, he brings up some of the same issues too. I just, you have the information that's out there recently really correlated to what we see on the on, on the street basically what we see in the in the market and stuff so i'm just kind of wondering where the difference is there so yeah i just appreciate every input i mean great show by the way and really well put together presentation i just appreciate your time and definitely got another follower thanks ian thank you yeah and if you ever have suggestions for future topics for the show you want to hear happy to my lines always open awesome well good luck on the house build yeah, thanks. Uh, one more comment I was going to make just on the dollar since you mentioned it. Uh, one thing that I find is interesting is the dollar is actually up significantly against the euro and the yen. I believe the yen is down 25% over the past year and the euro is down like 15%. Uh, and so this kind of gives the Fed a little more leeway in terms of, yeah, we would say the dollar is weak in terms of relative to assets. Uh but it's interesting, as long as the euro and the yen are even weaker, it gives the Fed a lot of room to maneuver because there's still demand for dollars in the international market for whatever reason. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we, the, the Fed also, in the last two years, right, it created new new dollars to the tune of 40% of what was currently in existence. So by nature, everything else that's in current circulation should be devalued, correlating to 40% as well. But we haven't seen that. We saw a strengthen strengthening of the dollar which is interesting it's kind of done the opposite of what you would expect when you devalue what's already out there yeah yeah exactly i guess to some extent it's gone into things like commodities where the fed can't print more oil or more uh, copper for example so mm-hmm. the prices of those have kind of run away from them but yeah, yeah, i don't point. know well thanks i really appreciate your comments uh I think it added a lot to the conversation and really appreciate the kind feedback on the show. Yeah, sure thing. Take care, Ian. Yep. Anyone else want to hop on? I see a few. Oh, here we go, Gary. Hello again. Yep. Welcome back. Uh, wondering if you could expand a little bit more on what you see happening this year with housing. And I'll just say a little bit of where I'm coming from is I'm sale pending on my house and we're going to move to another state and uh, it's less expensive there. So I, I think we'll have a number of options, but when we went in and signed for the closing, it was a subsidiary of first American financial and they said they're just super busy right now. Like uh, the last month or two has been uh, crazy busy for them. And I'm curious your take on how uh, people's behavior is likely to be in the rising rate environment as far as we we have the impression now that there's a lot of people um, that are trying to get it done before rates rise a lot. Um, but I'm curious about your comment earlier that some people are reluctant to sell because they don't want to have to get a mortgage at a higher rate. And if you think that would keep inventory down. Yeah, good question. And congrats, I think, on the home sale. Hopefully you can time the market uh, well in between your properties. So uh, We're uh, trying. Yeah. 
and and good on using First American. That's the title insurer that I that I own. So I appreciate the business there. <laughs> so sure. I think it's a yeah. I think First American's a good company, but slightly off topic. Uh, yeah. So from uh, it's interesting. You would think from what we've seen so far that the demand would already be rolling over. And I just looked at the latest data from the Commerce Department for March, and they said that home sales were still up. And more interestingly, housing permits, new housing permits were up uh, year over year as well, which is very contrary to what you'd expect uh, in terms of you would, you would think that maybe demand would still be up, like you mentioned, people trying to get deals done before rates go up more. But it's very weird to me that permits are still going up. Uh, which might indicate the market is stronger than than we expect. On the other hand, I've seen data from Redfin, a realty site, uh, and from Opendoor, like the search traffic there is down like 10, 20%. And so it looks like uh, there's some diminishing of interest uh, based on the digital data we see. But the actual like data we get from the Commerce Department, which is the transactions in progress and the new permits are still up. Um, certainly the market's slowing. The data's a lot weaker than it was a few months ago. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I see a few people saying that housing is going to surprise people and there's so much pent up demand for millennials and from people having higher incomes, uh, that they're still going to buy regardless of interest rates. Um, I'll be very curious. Obviously we're going to the summer, the height of the season. So if the market's going to roll over, it should roll over in the next few months. But the data's not there yet to say that we're really slowing as much as I would have expected. Yeah, well, one interesting thing for us is we're moving to Arizona and uh, specifically somewhere in like Tucson or north of Tucson. And in looking at the demographics and the building that's going on there, um, almost half of the houses are rented and there's a number of companies now that are uh, corporate and that are buying houses and building houses and a lot of the builders are building houses for corporations that are uh, putting out homes for renting and so i'm kind of wondering if that might be a direction that housing goes is more corporations uh, just flooding the market with rentals as opposed to people being able to afford to buy their own. Yeah, that's certainly a trend we've seen. Blackstone and other institutional uh, asset managers have been buying up a lot of houses. Uh, there have been a couple of REITs in the space as well. Uh, yeah, they've been kind of the marginal buyer of houses, uh, from my understanding, over the past few years in the American market. Uh, I'm kind of skeptical this will go on long term. For one, uh, margin tends to be pretty low. Um, with real estate, you get uh, major uh, benefits of scale from larger properties because you have to hire your property managers and fix stuff and everything. And so, I don't think I don't think you're going to make large margins owning single-family homes as a if you own thousands of them. I, I I don't see it being a great business. I could be wrong. We'll see. But I'm skeptical that owning a bunch of individual houses is going to have nearly the same unit economics as owning uh, much larger buildings like offices or warehouses. Uh, the second thing is there's a lot of political pressure against allowing corporate landlords. It's already becoming a big issue on the left. Uh, it's obviously not a problem with Biden in power, but if you see a uh, someone more of the political persuasion of Elizabeth Warren in the future as president or in charge of uh, Treasury, let's say. I think you might see a lot of political pushback. Um, 
Yeah, there's there's a rising push towards antitrust, uh, kind of kind of a populist movement on both sides of the aisle, and I think uh, home ownership is going to be one of the places where people say we do, we don't want big companies owning all our homes. So, I think the trend will continue for a few years, but uh, let's say by twenty thirty, I'd expect there will be a lot of backlash uh, if it keeps going. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah. Oh, and the, I was just going to comment uh, since you're going to Arizona, uh, if you. I don't know which uh, town you'll be in, but if you end up being a global water customer, then buy their stock, uh, get your get your utility bill back from their dividend. I love that story on global water. It's just the Arizona market's incredible uh, for home growth. I think it's going to be one of the the uh, the big long term demographic stories in the U.S. What attracted you to Arizona, by the way? Uh, well, I have family there, and uh, my wife has health problems, so we've thought about for a long time moving to a warm climate to see if she does better and I have job prospects down there too but um, it's kind of a combination of things but yeah it's interesting we're we're headed towards uh, Tucson and one of the things I found out about it is that uh, for a number of decades they've kind of frowned on having grass because grass takes water and you have to water your yard every day Um, so there's a lot of houses that have uh, artificial or just don't have any grass. They have just some sort of landscaping that doesn't use it uh, as a way of saving water. Yeah, that's right. I, uh, my family moved to Colorado when I was in high school, and so we did the same thing. Our front yard had a little bit of grass and then a lot of rocks and hedges and stuff that didn't use water. So uh, definitely, uh, yeah, that's a very water shortage area. So. But the growth prospects, despite that, are amazing. The census data for Arizona has been incredible. Phoenix and Tucson have, yeah, have been yeah. have been tremendous growth engines. Yeah, we're we're in the Portland area, so I, I did the math, and just by uh, elim- potentially eliminating our mortgage by downsizing and paying cash for a house with the equity we have here, and then with the lower property taxes, I mean, we're looking at about $26,000 less expenses uh, per year on, on the real estate. That's incredible. Yeah, that's that's the sort of math people are wondering, like, why is everyone leaving New York and New Jersey and Washington and Oregon? And it's <laughs> you, you answered it right there. It's yeah. And, powerful you know, trend. It, 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 I love Oregon, but uh, the really great thing about living here used to be the summers, but you know, quite honestly, we have wildfire smoke every summer now, and uh, it's just not the same as it was 10 years ago. So I always thought if I left the Northwest, it would be kicking and screaming, but actually I'm I'm kind of looking forward to it. Yeah, well, congrats on the upcoming move, and hopefully, like I said, the, you're able to navigate in between the housing market well. So Yeah, we're just, we're trying to decide whether to rent or buy down there and part of me wants to rent and see if the market comes down and then buy in a year or two but uh it's it's kind of a tough choice because there's actually a fair amount of competition for the rentals there um so i haven't made a decision yet yeah definitely check the check the math closely but yeah, thanks for calling in. Appreciate the right. comments. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, open the, yep, absolutely. All right. Hafte, you are up next. Oh, uh, let's see. 
Anyone else? I recognize a few faces. Daniel, Aaron, anyone else? Oh, half day, you're back. Okay. Okay. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I didn't. Uh, I joined halfway, so I don't know whether this uh, has been addressed. How do you see um, the rising rates as affecting insurance companies um, differently than banks, and whether insurance companies may present a good um, potential target when the rates are uh, doing so? I mean, when the U.S. government bonds are doing so poorly. I mean, the my angle is insurance companies hold a lot of uh, long-dated U.S. treasuries, and they may be under pressure to sell, or their what's the word stop loss may be triggered when the twenty-year U.S. treasuries are down thirty percent from peak to twelve. So uh, I just wonder whether you have any um, insight from this angle. Or on this industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a good question.、Uh, yes, you're right. The the insurers will typically have half, or sometimes more than half, of their assets in fixed income,、uh, U.S. Treasuries and corporate bonds, municipal bonds, things like that. And as you mentioned, they're suffering large market market losses on those.、Uh, yeah, some of the some of the corporate and municipal bonds are down more than thirty percent now. I think from the peak. Uh, and so those those are big losses.、Um, it depends on how the insurance company marks their books.、Uh, some do mark to market, in which case they'll have、uh, earnings losses from the value of their bonds diminishing. In other cases, they only market uh, earnings uh, when they sell. So if they hold the bond, they don't have to mark a loss.、Uh, for most insurance. Co- Well, for most life insurance com- companies with long-term insurance, so life or disability,、uh, those sorts of extended-term、uh, policies, they they usually don't ever sell bonds. They buy bonds and then hold them to maturity. So if they buy a thirty-year bond, they can own it for thirty years uh, because uh, they're selling life insurance, which say someone's forty when they buy the life insurance policy, and then they die at eighty, and so the the insurance company has forty years to to invest. So they can hold the bonds forever,、uh, and so like a, a life insurer like MetLife is fine with higher interest rates because they don't need to sell any of the bonds they own. They can just let them mature, and then uh, uh, as those bonds mature, they can buy new bonds that are paying much higher interest rates. And so over the longer term,、uh, something like what we're seeing now with a dramatic repricing of interest rates should be good for life insurance like Prudential and MetLife and Affleck. Uh, that should be good for them in the long term. It might be bad for them over the next two or three years, like you said, as they're taking losses on the short term. But they shouldn't have to sell too much.、Um, but yeah, if an insurer for some reason has to sell their bonds today, like I don't know if they're a, maybe an auto insurer that has shorter term、uh, inflows and outflows of capital.、Uh, yeah, you might see some problems. But I think overall, rising interest rates should be good for insurers. They've been struggling. Uh, returns on equity, returns on assets have really diminished for the industry since 2008, just because interest rates went from being able to get five or six percent on a treasury bond to getting two percent.、Uh, that's really hurt them because if you're an insurer and you've essentially modeled your business on being able to get eight percent returns from a mix of stocks and bonds, and then your bonds go from earning five percent to earning two percent, then Either you're going to underperform, or you have to take a lot more risk on the stock side of the portfolio to get your blended eight percent. 
And so over the long term, this should be good for insurers because now they can go and buy bonds that are actually paying some interest. But, but like you said, there may be there may be short term disruptions because if they're forced to sell some of the, the lower yielding bonds they own now. Um, so when would they be forced to sell? Are they subject to the Basel three like uh, regulations, the insurance codes? Uh, don't believe the American ones are, but I'm not sure what the uh, insurance codes are overseas. I don't believe I don't believe U.S. insurers are forced to to mark to market like that. Uh, okay. And then I have a second question. I don't know whether you talked about it before, um, about the gold-dollar relationship, because I used to believe, that, or maybe it'll, it'll still come back, the relationship, that the gold is ha, has an inverse relationship to the 10-year uh, real yield on the U.S. treasuries. Um, but this relationship seems to have broken off in the last three to six months, um, because right now the real rate is already in part above zero or like around the zero point, the real rate. But gold has seems to still want to head up. So do you have any um, view on this? Um, yeah, I mean, in other currencies, like gold has already gone to new highs against the euro and against the yen. Uh, I think people are buying it in large part just because it's another commodity and another alternative to to fiat money during inflation. I mean, look at how much oil and copper and zinc and lead and agricultural products have gone up. Uh, I think, I mean, in the short term, you're just seeing a rush to buy anything that's a commodity. And so that's going to sustain gold uh, to a certain degree. Uh, you're probably right in the longer term and uh, that people will... They'll sell gold if they can get better returns from owning bonds. Um, but yeah, in the short term, we're just having a tremendous commodity bull market. And so gold is benefiting from the price of all the other metals going up. Certainly the, the war in Ukraine helps drive demand for gold as well. If you're, if you're a citizen of Eastern, uh, Eastern European country and you're thinking, do I want money in the bank or do I want money in gold now? And a lot of people would be buying gold. Hmm. Okay. Do you think gold drawlers would be a good play on gold? On gold. Uh, as an investment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't really know the industry. Is there? Uh, I'm not sure what's listed. I assume there's more listed in Asia, maybe in India and China. But I'm not yeah, sure. What I, I know one play that's uh, listed in Hong Kong. They're actually selling at a book value around 0.6 and their book value consists mostly of their inventory which is gold gold and other jewelries plus some very little real estate mostly stuff of this kind so to me that's a cheap way of buying gold at this juncture anyway yeah that's interesting mention it in the in the chat i'll take a look okay okay sure Uh, that's it thank you thank you all right, TJ, come back up. <sighs> I was just going to ask you if you had a website or if you had any print material or any way to, to get in contact you, write you, email you, or something like that outside of just calling. Uh, yeah. Uh, are you on Twitter? No. Not on Twitter. 
Um, let's see. Yeah, I guess Twitter direct message is what I usually give people. Um, um, let's see. I don't know. Uh, uh, is there... Um, but, but, but. I do have a website, but I don't, don't know. I don't know if the contact info there works or not. <laughs> I, haven't, <laughs> I haven't been on it in a while. Uh, I don't know. Uh, try to message me through the app after the show's over, I guess, and I'll give you my email. I don't okay. want to put my email out in there. Yeah, uh, I can everyone. understand. Yeah, yeah, sounds good, yeah. Thanks. All right, yep. Aaron. Hi, Ian. Uh, not to uh, not to correct you, but the best way to get in contact with Ian is uh, through Seeking Alpha through his subscription service. Um, I'm a very bad marketer. Uh, thank you for <laughs> for the pitch. Um, I just had a I came in late, so uh, just had a kind of a a broad question for you. Uh, it, it I've been getting the sense, and I don't know if I'm reading the tea leaves wrong, but that you're getting a little bit more bearish, uh, and that's interesting to me. Uh, given that commodity prices tend to go up at the beginning of a of a bull market, and and obviously, you know, we're dealing with inflation and and all sorts of uh, supply shortages and so on. Um, so I guess I just wanted to, you know, to the extent that you haven't covered already in something that I missed, kind of zoom out to the macro and and give your sense of the market and and conditions and what you see in the near to medium term. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, it's been a weird dichotomy. I'd say that I've been cautious on on the market overall, and particularly on tech stocks since the I don't know last summer. And so I'd say I've been in a pretty cautious stance uh, for a while. But I saw a lot of stuff that I owned that I thought was still very attractive and could go up a lot, like the airports, the staple stocks, uh, yeah, the defense contractors. I saw a lot of opportunities for stuff where I thought that we could still make a good amount of money. Uh, even though I was cautious on the overall S and P five hundred, and particularly on the on the tech stocks, um, but now fast forward to today, and like a lot of my favorite ideas have already hit new highs. Like I was mentioning in the intro, like Hormel new all time high today, Raytheon new high today, Canadian Natural new high today, so on. Like a lot of stuff has gone up a lot that I own, and so I'm running out of stuff that I think is safe and where I can hunker down. I mean, like something like the staples are still fine, but the upside is a lot less from here than it was. Uh, six months ago, and so I'm getting more cautious just because if if I had to put new money to work today, I'm have much less compelling ideas now than I did six months ago. So that would be my that would be my change in tone. As for what you said on commodities, uh, I think you're right. Although I might argue that we're just having a very fast cycle, but we're already very far into the cycle. Uh, the price on a lot of commodities has hit new highs, or at least highs that we haven't seen since the mid 2000s. And so I'm not sure if we're still early cycle anymore. Stuff like corn and wheat and copper and coffee and oil is all trading way, way, way up. Uh, I don't like on oil in particular. I think oils uh, didn't stop going up until what was it like May of 2008? I think it peaked for the for that commodity super cycle from China. I think steel peaked in April of 2008. Fertilizer peaked in the beginning of 2008. Uh, and obviously, like the economy was already starting to roll over, at least in the U.S., uh, well before commodities topped out. I remember gas that year going from four dollars to a dollar twenty-five in like six months, which was just crazy. Uh, but 
Yeah, so I, I wouldn't take too much confidence from the fact that uh, we're early in a commodity cycle because we may actually, we may be closer to to at least an interim peak than you might expect. Uh, it's just so unprecedented in terms of how quickly inflation has roared up and now how fast the Fed is supposed to hike rates. Uh, uh, I, I see a very wide range of outcomes and that makes me less confident than usual because I can see anything from a pretty severe recession to a soft landing and then accelerating growth again over the next 18 months. And so I, I think we have to plan for a wide variety of potential outcomes. Yeah, the one thing, and, and I don't know if this is uninformed or kind of simplistic, but my thought on inflation was just that, you know, given the amount of money that was injected into the economy, it seems to me that inflation should be much higher and that, I, I don't know, at least that, that I, I, I don't know, my, my, my hunch was that inflation wasn't going to be something long term to be concerned about just given the amount of money that was injected into the system and, and that it, you know, if, if, I don't know, if inflation was going to be a real thing or like a a long-term issue that it would be significantly higher. But again, that's just a layman's perspective and not really informed by anything. Do you have any, any thoughts on, you know, beyond, I guess, beyond, you know, hiking rates, uh, what would kind of wash inflation out of the system? Yeah, well, I think there's kind of to what TJ spoke about how inflation in certain parts of the economy is much higher than the 8% rate. And then obviously it's lower in others. So it averages to 8%. But the inflation we've seen in particular in food and in autos uh, and in housing, I don't think the Fed can allow that to go on. Like people's food bill going up 20% a year is just something that will not be politically acceptable. And so it's great that things like apparel and electronics uh, are up very little. Uh, but when you start hitting the things like uh, gasoline and food and lodging that people need just to live, and those are going up at double digits now, uh, I think the Fed does have to take much stronger action against that than usual. You understand my point how like overall the inflation rate isn't that bad, but not everyone needs to buy a new TV or computer every year, but we do need to buy gas <laughs> every month or what, whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, and did that make sense on my overall market outlook? Just in terms of, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, from the S&P perspective, I'm not sure how much has changed over the past six months. We're still kind of trading around the same level and the same valuation, but we've had such a big rotation. That the stuff that I thought was safe and attractive has now gone up dramatically. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, and again, this is uninformed, but I, I think that my expectation was to see a lot of choppiness while a lot of the kind of the excess and the, the garbage companies that had been run up a lot kind of came back to realistic values. Um, but it, I don't know, it seems to me that the longer that it chops without, you know, a major shock, the the more likely it is that we just chop for a while until, uh, until everything settles out. But again, just, that's just a hunch. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, it's uh, a reasonable outlook. The longer that the Fed's so many things that could have knocked the market down over the past year, uh, between inflation and the rate hikes, and now the war in Russia, and all, and S and P has been able to, and obviously the tech stocks, uh, the speculative tech stocks imploding, and so it's been quite a, quite a, uh, 
quite a good effort by the bulls to keep the S&P overall essentially flat. So yeah, you're right. The longer that the overall market can hold up, the the better the odds that the market just manages to chop and rotate through instead of having a, a bigger correction. Uh, but I think there's still real pressure in tech. Uh, yeah, the, the Netflix quarter was not good. And in particular, the reaction to, I mean, the quarter was bad, but was it 35% bad or is it people are still positioned wrong and I don't know. It seems a lot of tech companies are going to have bad 2022s because they're up against uh, unusually good numbers from driven by the pandemic. And so, I don't know. I think we, I think there's still more downside coming on stuff like ARC. Uh, we'll see how the broader market handles that. Well, fingers crossed for, uh, uh, for no major correction. Yeah. Well, depends on, uh, I wouldn't mind. Uh, some lower prices. I'm always happy to put more capital to work, but I guess, yeah, it depends, uh, depends on how we get it. I don't want to see a big recession and uh, major economic pain. Hopefully the Fed can uh, kind of let uh, air out of the, the, the balloon gently rather than causing a big, big wreck. Absolutely. Last thing, and I'll let you go because I know it's uh, running over. Did you uh, end up purchasing that property that you were mentioning on Twitter? Um, I've got the cash use check from the bank and I'm trying to pay them and I don't know some problem with the notary and I don't know. Colombians are weird. So, uh, fingers crossed. I've got the cash use check. I would like to buy it. And if they want my money, <laughs> I am ready, <laughs> ready to go. Fingers crossed for you. Yep. Thanks a lot. Ian. Have a good night. Yep. You too. All right. Last, uh, if anyone else wants on, uh, Take one more call, or we can call it an evening either way. All right. Well, thanks, uh, everyone, for joining. Uh, great call tonight. Enjoyed all of the people that called in to chat, and hopefully you learned something about the banking industry and kind of the overview for that and the economy more broadly. And we'll be back next week with another episode. So thanks, and have a great evening. Bye-bye.